Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa today for details. More later in the show. This is the Starship Sofa. Hello and welcome. Welcome to Oral Delights on a Wednesday night, show number 36. We have a fine and dandy lineup today. We have Flash Fiction today by Atlanta Pendragon. We have an article by our good friend Mr Matthew Sanborn-Smith. The main fiction tonight comes from Mr Paul DeFilippo. And on the sofa today we have a new section which will be coming every time I get a little file from an author. It is where the author has a, basically an open mic spot. They are given 10 minutes opportunity, 15 minutes opportunity just to say what they want. Today is Mr Jeff Carlson who wrote Frozen Sky from last week. So please listen out for that. So I hope you'll stick around and I hope you enjoy the show. So first off, we have... Bottles by Greg Beatty When I was young, my grandfather built ships in bottles. A disappointment at first. When Dad said Grandpa was building boats, I imagined him with a gun, firing hot rivets into iron. Still, the bottles offered their own pleasure, and the ships were a surprise. Space, not sail. Some of the great galactic ladies of fiction, the Enterprise, of course, Lying Bastard, Rama, and a minute Skylark. Some were not fictional per se, but instead hypothetical. Grandpa's version of a light sail, gossamer belly cast from reworked frisbees, anomalous beanstalks built of popsicle sticks. 
When I was young, the ships were the wonder. Now that I'm not, it's the bottles. There's something wondrous about a hyperspace shunt inside a two-liter Dr. Pepper, a ramjet inside a classic Coke. I used to wonder at the ships. Now I wonder at the nature of the bottles that contain them. Are they simply material? Glass and plastic bent from original consumer purposes to hold visionary beasts? Or are they symbolic, serving to mark the confines of gravity, society, and perhaps the fabric of space-time, improvised clients with everything and nothing inside? Again, thank you, Mr. Greg Beattie. Don't forget, all copyright is Mr. Greg Beattie. And Julie Davis, Julie over there at Forgotten Classics, thank you very much. So our flash fiction today comes from Atlanta Pendragon. Miss Pendragon was born in Salem, Massachusetts and currently lives in Texas with a bevy of neurotic cats. She tells me she writes sporadically and reads tarot cards but avoids sunlight as it's bad for her tattoos. Narration today for this story comes from our good friend Diane Severson. Diane, thank you. So, without further ado... Moon over Baton Rouge. Make a story out of it, Anne. Charlie, this guy's obviously some moron. If he actually believes what he's saying, he must be off his meds. And don't call me on my cell. You know I hate that. She'd pulled over in order to take the call. Anne never drove while talking on the phone. It was one of her rules. Anyway, I'm on my way to Port Vincent, remember? You're the one who wanted me to talk to that UFO guy. So you'll talk to the UFO guy tomorrow. We haven't had a vampire article in ages. He spells it with a capital V and a Y. I'm surprised he didn't throw in a couple of H's and an umlaut while he was at it. Just do it. He gave her the address to meet up with her latest interviewee. A motel room. Of course it would be a motel room. Once more, Anne realized that the greatest weakness of cell phones is that you can't slam them down with any satisfaction. The room was dim, lit more by the glare of the neon outside the window than the aging lamp in the corner. Why did guys like this always want to meet up in dank, squalid little rooms? Why not a diner or something? At least that would smell better. So, how is it you came to be, as you put it, a soul vampire? Her voice was flat, almost detached, Anne had heard all sorts of stories in the interviews she did for her column. Fringe made fate look like the skeptical inquirer. Guys like this were the reason why. Lord Maximilian Incarnadine gave his best indulgent smile. His black lipstick was only slightly smudged. I was, of course, different from birth. In my earliest childhood, I could sense it. Others could, too. Nobody was comfortable in my presence, even when I was small. His pause was as calculated as his words, and probably as rehearsed. Anne noted the powdery white makeup rubbing off on the collar of his black velvet shirt. When did you start drinking blood? It started small, of course, licking up the drops of blood that would fall whenever I cut myself. When I was eleven years old, I found a bird with a broken wing— I was enthralled by the sight of its pulse beating in its small throat. 
Before I knew it, I had bitten into its neck and was sucking out its blood. Did you do this often? Kill small animals to drink their blood? She fought back a yawn. Only a few times. I realized, you see, that it wasn't the blood itself I needed, but what it symbolized. The life force, the true inner essence. Once I understood what I truly needed, I knew that no animal could give me what I needed. His fingers twitched in his lap. It had to be human, you see. I got in trouble at school for hanging around the nurse's office. I would steal bloody bandages out of the garbage, you see. Suck on them. The only sound from Anne was the scratch of her pen on the notebook. She tried to keep the joke about what Dracula used for tea bags out of her head. It got easier when I got older. I met some people who understood, you see. Some of them knew more than I did. They told me where to go to meet girls who liked it, liked having their blood sucked. I learned how much stronger the essence is in blood that is given freely. He raised his eyes to meet hers. I don't do guys. I'm not, I mean, I only bite girls. Anne wondered if he ever had any trouble with getting mascara on his green contacts. Do you need a lot of blood? Have you killed many people? He rose from his chair and began to pace. Those are all slanders, misrepresentations. Most blood tests need more blood than I do. It is the life behind it, the act of surrender that feeds me. He gave her his most enticing grin. Won't you let me show you? Anne peered up at him over the rims of her glasses. It... You aren't going to hurt me, are you? His grin widened as he took a utility knife out of his pocket. Only a pinch, sweetheart. He pushed up the sleeve of her sweater and cut a narrow gash on her bicep. Fastening his lips around the small wound, his eyes widened, his whole body stiffening. Anne laughed softly at the astonished look on his face. There was power in blood, all right. Lord Maximilian Incarnadine just had it the wrong way around. Okay, that's enough. Anne pulled her arm away. The inch-long cut had already vanished. No blood remained to stain the sleeve of her yellow sweater. I'll give you a couple of hours to nap, and once I've tracked down some dinner, you're driving me to Port Vincent. Some damn fool thinks a UFO crashed in his living room. The voice-activated tape recorder in her pocket had gotten the conversation, of course. Her inscription in the notebook was brief. Black velvet shirt, $39. Matte white pressed powder, $6. The look on a wannabe's face when he meets the real thing, priceless. Again, copyright is... At Arland R. Pendragon, don't forget, no going out steely steely. Diane Severson for a fantastic narration, thank you very much. So today's podcast is sponsored by Audible.com, the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Get this, Audible has over 35,000 titles to choose from, to be downloaded and played back anywhere, just like Starship Sofa. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up to Dane. 
Again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for your free audiobook. And I was trying to kind of think, one of the books that I thought was just well worth the value was the audiobook Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell by Susanna Clarke. Now, that is one meaty audiobook. It is, I'm sure it's past 18 hours, and it's just a fantastic display of narration. Do you know what I mean? It's just so many characters, so many twists and turns in this book. What And that's up there for on Audible, and it's there for free if you get your sign up today. So please, there's my recommendation. Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell by Susanna Clarke. So next we come on to an article by our good friend, Mr. Matthew Sanborn-Smith. Now this was an idea Matt had, and through an exchange of emails and some bribes by me, and in the end I just started calling them names, I got him to record, got him actually to go out and buy a mic first, and he recorded this article for us, and you know Matt's done a great job here, and messing backwards and forwards as well with ideas, and he's come up as well with an idea which will be great for him, a monthly article as well, so stick around and listen to Matt in the coming months when he delivers his own monthly article. First things first, I'm no scientist, I have no degree. But as you'll hear, the observations I make require nothing more than a calculator, a little research, and some idle time. What I am is a retail manager, and in that regard, and the subject of this discussion, family history, the two merge briefly. Years ago, an irate customer told me, My family is 2,000 years old. I'm not making that up. I suppose he believed this conferred some sort of majesty upon him, or made him a better class of human being than the rest of us. Not wanting to argue with a customer, I didn't bring up the fact that everyone's family was 2,000 years old. In fact, everyone's family is 3.5 billion years old, and we're all in the same family. I'm talking about genealogy, one of the mundane forms of time travel in which humans engage. My father takes great interest in this subject, but I've never gotten caught up in it myself. Part of the reason is that some people, like my customer, believe that their family tree gives them superpowers like the ability to talk down to others, or plain old smug superiority. I know that whatever my ancestors did has no bearing on what I'm capable of doing. My father tells me we're descended from William the Conqueror. That's very interesting. Maybe it's a conversation starter, but in the cold, hard reality of my life, William the Conqueror has nothing to do with who I am any more than my slave-holding ancestors do. Genealogy is an inexact hobby at best. Up until, say, the last ten years, its discoveries were mostly dependent on paperwork. The problem is, as time stretches into the past, paper trails thin out and disappear. Even the paper that does exist can be dubious. If some family histories are to be believed, there are no such things as bastards. Those histories tell the stories that families tell themselves and their neighbors. If someone's great-grandmother got busy with a milkman, chances are it's not on paper. New information is coming to light now thanks to our growing understanding of genetics and the technology to take advantage of that understanding. These days, thanks to widespread gathering of DNA and the identification of certain genetic markers, we can learn things that never found their way to paper. Like the recent revelation that one half of one percent of the entire male population of Earth is descended from Genghis Khan. They can tell by the Y chromosome, you see, the chromosome that makes a man a man. Because of this, they can't prove a thing about Khan's female descendants, but common sense, if not science, suggests that one half of one percent of the ladies could count him among their ancestors as well. 
A couple of years back, my family went to see a demonstration at my daughter's school. It was presented by a Native American named Jim Sawgrass on some of the customs and culture of the Creek Nation, which covered North Florida, Georgia, and Alabama. He presented his infotainment extravaganza, showing old tools and pelts and dances and whatnot. You can see photos of him and learn about what he does at jimsawgrass.com. Anyway, what got me on this genetic train of thought at the time was my belief that the guy must have had a good bit of white blood in him. His parents were there, and you'd be hard-pressed to tell that they were Native Americans. I'm not trying to denigrate any of the Sawgrass family or what they do, because I think what they do is great. To legally belong to one of the many tribes in America, a person often has to prove they have a certain fraction of Native American ancestry, like one-fourth or one-sixteenth, for instance. So I don't mean to say that they were just trying to pass themselves off as Native American. You'll understand what I'm getting at in a moment. A couple of days after seeing Jim in action, I thought about his possible ancestry, and I remembered that I've got a Wampanoag ancestor twelve generations back. On my mother's side, I'm only the third generation in this country, but a couple of lines on my father's side, I'm thirteenth generation. At least three of those guys were on the Mayflower, and one of those, Giles Hopkins, hooked up with a native girl, christened Catherine, and then I was born. Okay, I skipped a bit. I wondered what fraction of Wampanoag I was, in case I had wanted to go up to Jim and mention this. Two to the power of twelve, since we're talking twelve generations, gives me the number 4,096. I imagined myself going up to old Jim Sawgrass and saying, Hey, I'm one 4,096th Wampanoag, and he would shout, Brother! And they'd throw a big buffalo skin over my head and make me shaman of their tribe. After I came back down to earth, I thought more on that 4,096 thing. It meant that I have, and everyone else has for that matter, 4,096 great, 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 bear with me here, great, great, great grandparents. That's a lot of people that went into making me. Now that's the maximum number, isn't it? I mean, it could be less, because let's say you're talking about 2,048 women in that group. What's to say two of them weren't impregnated by the same guy? Or one woman wasn't impregnated by two different guys? It happens all the time, right? no matter what the paperwork would have you believe. And if you go back far enough, it would have had to have happened. Let's go way back, 2,000 years, to when my customer's family first popped into existence. I've checked a half dozen sites, including the U.S. Census Bureau and NOVA Online, and they give estimates of human population in the year 1 A.D. as ranging anywhere from 175 million to 400 million people. Let's play with the high number and call it 400 million. How many generations ago was that, 1 A.D.? Judging the one branch of my family's timeline, from my many greats grandmother Catherine Hopkins to my daughter Ivory, it's about 14 generations over the course of around 390 years, or roughly one generation every 28 years. Your own mileage may vary. We're looking at roughly 71 generations over the last 2,000 years, which means as we climb my family tree and watch it branch out 71 times, we should see over two sextillion ancestor branches of that generation. Now that's an American sextillion, mind you, which differs from the European sextillion. The number I mean is 2 times 10 to the 21st power. Well, that's just crazy. To sum that up, I should have over two sextillion ancestors from 71 generations ago. But wait, only 400 million people at most even existed then. So let's look at this tree of ours again. There are quite a number of ingrown branches here. The lineage is a lot more cozy with itself than we might have thought. As we pull back, you'll notice that our family trees begin to look less like trees as they grow taller and more like woven baskets. 
Moreover, those baskets could come to something that almost looks like a point on top, though more so for past generations than for ours. Geneticists have been able to produce a picture of human migration across the planet by studying the distribution of certain marker genes in current populations. Let's look at the first surviving migrations of humans out of Africa. These happened between 65,000 and 70,000 years ago, and consisted of only a few hundred people, 1,000 at most. For those of us who don't consider ourselves ethnically African, then, our family-woven baskets come together after getting fat in the middle. At some point, way the heck up that tree, which is now a basket, there's a bottleneck, no wider than 1,000 ancestors in one generation, and in most cases, probably a lot less. Alright, I know branches aren't going to line up precisely from generation to generation, but it will average out closely, and the bottleneck will still be evident. We're going to see these bottlenecks periodically as relatively small groups of pioneering humans ventured into new territories. The Maori are going to have a bottleneck at the generation when their ancestors first reached New Zealand. Climbing their trees above that bottleneck, we'd see more branching. A thickening of the trees once more when they lived in eastern Polynesia. Not too fat, because these people got around. We'd see bottlenecks as they migrated from island to island, all the way back through the Malay archipelago, and eventually to those earliest excursions from Africa. Did I say our family trees looked more like baskets? What I meant was more like a series of bulbs, reaching skyward, varying sizes, one tethered beyond another, back into history. That's, of course, in the pure of genetic worlds. My Trinidadian wife is ethnically African. If we go back, say, 400 years before the slave trade, she's got one enormous bulb, though I'd appreciate it if you didn't tell her I said that. She's got this huge bulb because there's a much greater genetic diversity among the black peoples of Africa than there is between the rest of the, quote, races, unquote, combined. They weren't restricted by that 65,000-year-old out-of-Africa bottleneck, and so had a much larger pool of ancestors from which to draw. Our kids' trees might look like two sets of bulbs tied together at the bases. Because of leaps in transportation technologies over the past few thousand years, which allowed people of differing genetic haplogroups to get it on with each other, the strings of bulbs are perhaps more distinct in the family trees of our ancestors than in our own. Our descendants, because of technologies of just the past century, might have trees that look more like tumbleweeds. To a point, anyway because the bulbs continue back in time through the lines of our non-human ancestors, every species from furry to fishy to gooey. I'm assuming there's a fraying somewhere at the very top, but who knows? Maybe our amino acid forebears all came from the same puddle, and we'll be able to wrap the whole mess up in one neat point. Be sure to tell the family their cousin says hi. Now, Matt... You've been playing too much time, retail manager, playing with a calculator to get all these facts and figures. Fantastic. Matthew Sanborn Smith, sir, thank you very much. Looking forward to your new article. Now, if you're thinking, I've got a good idea, I wouldn't mind having a bash at this, drop me an email, starshipsofa at gmail.com. If you have a good idea that could make a nice fact article, I would love to hear from you. So now we come on to the main fiction of the night by Mr. Paul de Filippo. And if anyone can remember back, it was Mr. Paul de Filippo that brought us that fantastic bit of flash fiction, The Cootie Box. Mr. Filippo is the author of hundreds of short stories, some of which have been collected in the Wiley Praise Collections, Steampunk Trilogy, Factual Paisley, Lost Pages. 
and he has a multiple award-nominated novella, A Year in Linear City. Another earlier collection, Destroy All Brains, was published by Pirate Writings, but it's quite rare because of the extremely short print run. So, Mr Philip was saying, if you see one, buy it. It'll be worth something. He has a new book out at the moment, coming in this summer months, called Cosmocopia. And hopefully I might be able to get Mr Paul DeFilippo onto the sofa and let him, in his own words, tell her all about it. So, without further ado, the Starship Sofa and her oral delights presents... Bad Beliefs by Paul DeFilippo I had kept putting off my quarterly mandatory visit to the local branch of the Department of Memes, and now I couldn't leave the house because of all the bad beliefs hanging around my doorstep. Don't ask me why I'd neglected my checkup and inoculations, because I can't tell you. I know it's every citizen's civic duty to keep his anti-meme vaccinations up to date, but some perverse streak inside me, possibly, now I think about it, an anti-anti-meme meme, made me keep postponing my appointment until it was just too late. Maybe it was the way the nurse had treated me last time I went to the Dom Clinic. She was very pretty and I wanted to like her, but she regarded me as if I were a leper just because I was diagnosed as having a mild case of yuppie flu. With a look of absolute distaste as if she had swallowed a fly, she boosted the volume on her white noise earphones and clicked down heavy filters on her protective goggles. I felt like a criminal. Or maybe it was the supercilious way the doctor talked to me as he hefted the heavy needle whose tip dripped with anti-meme juice. He was the kind of doctor who wore his degrees like a thousand-dollar suit. I'm afraid you've got a very bad complex this time, son. On top of the yuppie flu, the tests showed definite traces of someone else will pick up my litter. Bodybuilders are godlike and Elvis lives. But Elvis does live, I said. The doctor just clucked his tongue chidingly, while the buzzing, short-sighted nurse swabbed down my right ass cheek with antiseptic. And then he jabbed the needle in, and it really hurt. For a whole day afterwards, I was very disoriented. As the serum surged through my brain, driving out all the bad memes inside, I experienced frequent hallucinations. Most of these involved a pumped-up Elvis driving a pink BMW while throwing empty soda cans out the window. After 24 hours, I was back to normal. Or at least what I had to assume was normal. It was so hard to tell these days. I felt a weird compulsion to pay my taxes early, and that kind of pissed me off. The government isn't supposed to put any proactive memes of their own into our shots, but you can't tell me that they don't. I've had several pacifist friends who have just upped and joined the armed forces without even saying goodbye. Anyhow, for whatever reason, whether out of sheer stubbornness or actual meme infection, I delayed my next shot until the last possible minute, and well beyond. And now I was paying the price. Besides the anti-meme components specific to a patient's unique illness, each tailored shot contained a general-purpose booster that protected you from a wide range of memes. Mine had run out. That was why all the bad beliefs were now camped on my doorstep. They seemed to be able to sense when a person was vulnerable, and tended to congregate around a victim's house. Generally, what with every reasonable citizen being well and frequently inoculated, you didn't see many bad beliefs in the good neighbourhoods. Oh, sure. You might spot don't mow the lawn or thumb-sucking is cute hanging around, but that was about as bad as it got out in the burbs where I lived. 
In the quarantined inner-city ghettos, though, where people disdained Dom and their shots, man, that was another story. You tried to avoid those places if you could. The streets were full of bad beliefs of every conceivable variety, and there was no telling what you could pick up. Now, though, I was the source of contagion. Why, oh why, hadn't I just gone in for my shot? With a start, I realised that I was falling prey to crying over spilt milk will help. That meme had been one of the first to arrive, and was surely still out there now. Or was it? Maybe they'd all gone. I crossed my living room carpet, and timidly pulled back the corner of one thick drape, hoping that somehow all the bad beliefs would have just vanished. But of course they hadn't. In fact, there were more of them, many more, than the last time I dared look. They were all shapes and sizes and degrees of solidity. They were big as an elephant or small as a mouse. They were human-sized, animal-shaped, or shapes in between. You could see right through some, but others looked as substantial as your reflection. The bad beliefs were insouciantly draped over my shrubs and steps. They sat atop my car and on my lawn. They walked up and down, or squatted stolid as Indian chiefs. A group of four were playing poker, and some others were performing a kind of frenzied cannibal dance. A clatter from the roof indicated they were up there, too. The ones nearest the window spotted me, and shouts went up. Hey, Jimmy, come out and play. We won't bite. We just want to be friends. I dropped the curtain, as if it were a flame, and faded back into the room. They knew my name. I hadn't realised they would know my name. All my previous bouts with bad memes had been low-grade infections, nipped in the bud. But I guessed when things went this far, the memes apparently got more powerful, more tangible, and active. How active I could not at that moment have guessed. I wished for the prophylactic glasses and headphones that the nurse had worn. They might have helped me to escape but such devices were permitted only to medical personnel. It was felt that such mechanical contrivances were subject to failure and could cause a person to neglect their shots. My neighbours must be going nuts right now. My deliberate inattention to my own mental welfare had succeeded in lowering their property values immensely. Even yesterday, things hadn't been this bad. It was only a matter of time before one or more of my fellow homeowners called the Dom and a truck was dispatched to get me. In fact, I thought, I could hear the distant wail of sirens even now. Irrationally, I suddenly wished that I could have been born during a simpler time. I knew that life was supposed to be so much better nowadays with all these shots to protect us from bad beliefs. But on the other hand, it was the same shots that had made the bad beliefs assume these potent invisible forms. Until they were expelled en masse from the human mind, bad beliefs had been strictly internal, invisible, the private matter. They had spread invisibly too, unlike this assault today on my house. But once they'd been banished from their ancient lodgings in the human skull, banished, not exterminated, for that seemed impossible, they were free to roam at will. And today, I seemed to be the sole object of their attention. I was feeling like one of those besieged humans in an old zombie movie, when from behind me came a scuffling noise, and a human grunting that made me jump almost out of my skin. I whirled around, heart pounding like a lawnmower piston. Coming out of the fireplace was... Santa Claus. Santa, I said. Santa, I haven't thought of you since I was four years old. Santa brushed the soot off his outfit. I'm surprised you held on to me that long, son. Old Santa's a bad belief nowadays. Santa is real. is something you just can't say anymore. Santa? A bad belief? 
Sure, they say I cause too much heartbreak when it's revealed I'm imaginary. But I ask you, do I look imaginary to you? Oh, no, Santa. I still remember when I sat on your lap at the mall. Santa advanced on me. I let him put his arm around my shoulder. He smelled like plum pudding. Well then, you'll trust old Santa when he says you should go outside and meet all your new friends. They'll help you get on with your life, Jimmy. You've been stagnating. Was it true, what Santa was saying? I knew I didn't particularly like my job, or have any lovers, or friends, or interests, or passions. But stagnating was an awfully harsh word. Gee, Santa, I don't know. Suddenly, the sirens I heard grew louder, and Santa said, You don't want Dom to get you, Jimmy. Haven't you heard what they do to people who skip their shots? They implant a permanent anti-meme pump in you. It's set for such a high dose of drugs that you'll have trouble holding on to It's Time to Tie Your Shoe Meme. You'll end up a ward of the state, living in a meme-free rest home. No, your only hope now is to flee to the ghetto where Dom has no power. The sirens sounded about a block away, and I knew I didn't have any more time to hesitate. I had to make up my mind and fast. Should I wait for Dom and take my medicine? Or throw my lot in with the bad beliefs? Images of the sanctimonious doctor and the priggish nurse floated up before me. Then I looked straight into Santa's twinkly blue eyes. It was no contest. I don't even remember opening the door and fleeing my house. But somehow I was standing out on the lawn, surrounded by the bad beliefs. Quick, let's go! I yelled to no one in particular. Dom will be here any minute. Santa came up alongside me. No, they won't, Jimmy. Nobody's even called them yet. But the sirens. Santa ho-ho-hoed. That was just paranoia is the real story, Jimmy. A skinny dude with the nervous look of a speed freak stepped forward. He pursed his lips and out came a perfect siren noise. You, you tricked me. It was for your... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Grown good, Jimmy, believe me, said Santa, just before he vanished. Santa, come back. Another of the bad beliefs grabbed me by the shoulder and spun me round. I found myself facing a big burly male figure, wearing the head of a German shepherd. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there, kid. Ain't no one gonna help you but yourself. If I was you, I'd get my ass on the road. You're not gonna be safe until you get out of Dom's reach. Dog-eat-dog was right. There was only one place for me to go, and that was the ghetto. I jogged toward my car, the bad beliefs capering after me, whooping and hollering with delight. Their shapes were enticing and glamorous, and I had to fight to keep my focus. My hand shot out to the handle of the driver's door, but one of the bad beliefs beat me to it. I'll fucking take the wheel! Slurred, drink driving is safe. His shirt was covered with vomit stains, and a haze of alcohol fumes hovered around his head. Oh no, I began, but other bad beliefs interrupted me. Don't worry, said you can trust me, a beautiful young girl. We always let him drive. There's never been an accident we couldn't walk away from, said you'll never die, a precocious ten-year-old. You don't want to hurt his feelings, said you'll lose all your friends, a weenie of a teenager. Well, if you all think it's okay. We do, we do, they shouted and hustled me into the back seat. Drink driving slammed the car into reverse and peeled out, clipping my lamppost and dragging it halfway down the block before unhooking it when he climbed the curb and ran over an ornamental calf-high cast iron fence. Does he know how to get there? I asked, with some trepidation. Improbably, there seemed to be dozens of bad beliefs crammed into the car with me. What's more, they seemed to be continually changing, new ones replacing the old. Right now a bluff, hearty salesman type of bad belief was sitting behind me. Know where he's going? demanded Bluster will clinch the sale. He drew the map! Don't worry, Jimmy. We'll get you to safety, all right. We may have to... Uh, uh, we, we, um, we, we may have to make a few stops first, though, said short attention spans a postmodern. Stops? What for? I need some more bros, for one thing, said Drunk Driving, turning completely around. The car veered into the oncoming traffic, forcing several vehicles off the road, and I closed my eyes. Now I heard sirens again. Is that paranoia? No, said indecision as charming. I mean, yes! Bluster had vanished. In his place was a scary-looking black man with a goatee. Fuck the police, he said. Having regained our own lane, drunk driving floored the accelerator, and I was pressed back into the seat. All the bad beliefs were cheering and screaming with glee. We took a curve and I was pressed into the seemingly solid flesh of a girl beside me, who had replaced Fuck the Police. I looked at her and was shocked to see the form of my thirteen-year-old sister, who was really now thirty-five and living a thousand miles from here. My sister giggled and said, Oh, Jimmy, let's make out. She began to unbutton her shirt. I scuttled away until the door handle was digging into my back. Who, who are you? I'm incest is harmless. Let's screw. Incest had her shirt off, and I couldn't take my eyes off her juvenile breasts. I have no idea what I would have done if I hadn't been interrupted. But luckily for me, at that moment, drunk driving jumped another curb and slammed on the brakes. Even so, he still crunched into the side of a parked car. In a daze, I asked, Where are we? Are we at the ghetto? Are you fucking blind? said Don't Tolerate Fools. It's a packy. We need booze. All the bad beliefs tumbled out hustling me with them, and we blew into the package store like a hurricane of malevolent spirits. Drunk driving began to grab bottles off the shelves, stuffing them into his pockets and down his pants. The rest of the bad beliefs did likewise. 
The startled owner came out from behind the counter while the cashier picked up the phone and punched out 911. What the hell is going on here? demanded the owner. Suddenly, out of nowhere materialized a new bad belief. He resembled a hell's angel, all fat overlaid muscles, greasy leather and tattoos. And he was carrying a sawed-off shotgun. The owner froze, and all the color drained from his face. Property is theft, sneered Property is theft. Then he pumped both barrels into the refrigerator case, spraying glass and liquor everywhere. The owner dived back behind the counter, and the cashier hit the floor. Property is theft laughed. Your damn lucky life is worthless was busy fucking over Africa. We were back outside. I heard sirens again. This time it was really the cops. Three cruisers, in fact. Fuck the police materialized along with a dozen other oozy-toting black men. I brung the boys from the hood, he said. We'll cover while you make a break for it. We piled in the car. I found myself lying on the floor and back. Then we were screeching away, the sound of automatic weapons fire competing with our smoking tires. I dared to get up off the floor. Somebody stuck a quart bottle in my hand, and I unscrewed the top and drank, heedless of what was in it. When I was done sputtering, I asked quietly, Can we go straight to the ghetto now? Sure, said Promise Them Anything, who looked just like a famous politician. We picked up the freeway, heading toward the city, weaving from lane to lane, drunk driving past the other cars as if they were motionless. He didn't let up on the horn, and the blaring noise assumed the sound of the last trump. I closed my eyes when the speedometer cracked 100. A familiar figure began tossing empties out the window. Someone else will pick up my litter. I remembered when he had seemed like a big problem, and a hysterical laugh that was more like a sob escaped my lips. Take this exit! A new, fanatical voice shouted. Deceleration crumpled me into the upholstery. I opened my eyes and saw a new figure next to me. Half his face was bearded, half clean-shaven, half a turban and half a cowboy hat sat on his head. Half a string tie and half a set of prayer beads hung around his neck. Something about him immediately convinced me that he was one of the most dangerous bad beliefs. We must stop to smite the infidels, said the Muller preacher. You, your... I began. God is on our side! He screamed. Right, I sighed. Not far from the foot of the exit ramp was a gas station. We pulled in and filled several of the empties with gasoline, then corked them with some of the windshield cleaning rags. Then we went looking for churches. Luckily, it was a weekday, and most churches these days remained empty anyway, tainted with bad belief connotations. We torched a synagogue, a mosque, a storefront mission, and an RC church. God is on our side was strictly non-denominational, leaving plumes of smoke and leaping flames and screaming sirens in our wake. As we screeched down the city streets, taking turns seemingly at random, I wondered if I would ever live to see the safety of the ghetto. Had I been right to trust Santa? what seemed like an eternity ago? Was this escapade really going to lead to my personal growth? Would the bad beliefs lead me through hell and out the other side, or just leave me stranded, mid-inferno? In any case, it could not be said that I was continuing to stagnate. We took one final spine-snapping curve, and the walls of the ghetto loomed up. The street terminated in a massive gate, and in front of the gate was a six-story high dragon. All the bad beliefs shrieked in terror, and drunk driving stood on the brakes. Who? What? Is that? 
one of the bad beliefs said in a whisper, That's failure is inevitable. The dragon leered and breathed forth a jet of stream. Each of failure's scales was as big as a manhole cover. A small voice piped up. We can do it. Just try. It was Hope Springs Eternal, looking just like Tinkerbell. Drink driving took a stiff belt from his pint. Who the fuck wants to live forever anyway? He peeled out. We made it within fifty yards of the gate. Then failure raised a paw big as a tugboat and slammed our car. We tumbled over and over before we came to a stop, upside down, on our roof. The bad beliefs had cushioned me from serious harm, and we spilled out the windows, rumpled and bruised. Failure had lowered its head to our level, and glared at us with gemstone eyes the size of cathedral windows. It opened its mouth, revealing fangs and a split tongue. Its breath smelled swampy. Winged hope was hovering right by me. Never fear! Don't worry, there's always a way. Give it just one more shot. Don't hold back. Pick yourself up off the ground. I couldn't stand it any more. I grabbed the sprite, crushing her wings, and threw her into failure's mouth, which instinctively clamped shut. There was a brilliant flash of light, and I squeezed my eyes shut. When I opened them, failure was gone. Hope springs eternal, and failure is inevitable, had cancelled each other out of existence. The remaining bad beliefs let out a lusty cheer. Lifting me to their shoulders, they dashed for the gate, which was swinging open. Then we were inside and I was standing. The gates closed behind me. The bad beliefs all shook my hand and dispersed, home at last. I found myself alone except for two women. One of them seemed human enough. She was gazing shyly at the ground so I couldn't really see her face, but she seemed rather pretty, like the nurse at the Dom Clinic. The other figure was definitely a bad belief. She looked kind of like a combination of Guinevere, Venus, and Mae West. Alluring as she was, I knew at once that she was even more dangerous than God is on our side. And you are, I said. The bad belief smiled. I'm romantic love solves everything. And this is your bride. And you know what? I believed her. There you go, Mr. Paul DeFilippo. Thank you very much, sir, for that. What a great story. Grant as well. Excellent narration. Don't forget, copyright is Mr. Paul DeFilippo's. Please pop over to his site, check out his new book. Links on the front pages there of the website. And Grant, again, pop over. I will put a link onto Grant's site. Grant is now, you know, sometimes visit him in the engine room. He's working busily away there. So please pop over to Grant's site, say hello. Now this is where we come to a new part of the show, which won't be happening every week, just when I get them. I had this little idea, you know, it was all to do with kind of maybe the flash fiction drying up. But as Fred pointed out, it's a good idea to, when we've got flash fiction, put it up when we haven't, you know. But I thought, I'm going to stick this one up because we have just had Jeff Carlson's story on last week, Frozen Sky. And it would be nice just to kind of get them reasonably close together so Jeff Carlson's name and his books and his works are still kind of fresh in your minds. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to hand over the Starship Sova for the next 10-15 minutes to Mr. Jeff Carlson. Hi, my name is Jeff Carlson. I'm here today to talk about The Frozen Sky, my award-winning novelette uh, with the freaky blind aliens who will rip your face off, uh, and also about my novels Plague Gear and Plague War. Um, 
like to say that despite writing these sometimes scary and far out stories, I'm actually a very normal person. In fact, I might be the most well-adjusted science fiction writer that you will ever meet. I have a lovely, intelligent, supportive wife. We have two gorgeous, healthy children. I really like what I do. I'm beginning to have some success with my writing career. Um, and I have just a great time working on my stories and developing you know, the characters and the background and doing the research. Love what I do. Um, I seem to have written some stuff, though, that's, that's pretty, uh, pretty dark sometimes. The Frozen Sky was originally published in the Writers of the Future 23 anthology. Uh, it's about 12,000 words. That's edging towards like a novella, which is then edging towards an actual novel. It is something that I have on the back burner as developing into a full-fledged book. Uh, I would like to do it kind of like Alan Steele's Coyote series, where he writes a series of novellas and novelettes, you know, long short stories, and puts them together and can kind of write from different point of views, different characters. The Frozen Sky originally came to me. uh, My wife and I were on our honeymoon in Germany and Austria, kind of way back in the day now, uh, before we had kids and we could sleep in until 11 in the morning and stay up all night and all this great stuff. Uh, she has family over there, so we got to go and you know stay with the cousins and the uncles and and speak German and eat eat frikadellen and schnitzel and you know and go out. They would they're really big on uh, cake and kugen. You'd go out every day for refreshments. You'd have like three beers and a shot of coffee and some cake. It was awesome. Uh, while we were there, we also ducked into Austria, uh, which is of course in the uh, you know the the Alp regions, the region of the Alps. And one of the places that we went to was Der Eisriesenwelt, which translates to the Great Ice World, something like that. And in the um, in the Alps, I mean, I guess this is in more than one place, but there's this one that they've developed as like a tourist spot. There's this massive subterranean combs and tunnels that, that was slowly eroded out of the mountain by, you know, eons of snow and ice and the melt. And you, you know, you walk up, it's on a couple miles hike, it'd be several kilometers hike, maybe it's not that far, but you got to hike up the mountains from the parking lot. You go into like this big giant hole in the side of the mountain that they have closed off because they're trying to maintain the temperatures, you know, throughout the summer when we were there. But you walk in and there's just these crazy catacombs and it goes something like 25 miles deep. It's like, you know, better than where Tom Sawyer and Becky were lost in Tom Sawyer. And it's full of ice. Um, And in some places they even have to chip out um, the corridors so that the tourists can still walk through because the ice is always slowly in motion. There's enough, uh, you know, geothermal heat that the ice and, you know, and just from compression and gravity and melt, it's always moving. There's these huge standing waves and stalagmites and sheets and, and they all have funny names. There's all these formations that have names like, you know, the frog, which is der Frosch in German. Um, and you know the elephant, and some of these have changed over time. I mean, they started doing tours through there back in the 1920s, and so like the elephant no longer really looks like an elephant; it looks like a big, you know, melting mushroom that you might envision if you know if you hadn't eaten for several days. Anyway, uh, I walked in there, and you go in there in the darkness. All you have is these couple little, like these little gas lanterns, these little you know kerosene lanterns, and every now and then the guide will light off like a magnesium flare, so you can see. But they don't want the you know the photons, which affects the affects the the ice because there's constant tours. Now we were lucky; we ended up it was just me, my wife, and one guide. Um, right as we got there, like this huge group of uh, teenagers came out, you know, and they were all laughing and screaming. And then we went in; it was just the three of us, and it was silent, and it was dark. And at one point, our our guide stopped, and we we turned off 
our lanterns and you could just hear these empty miles of just blackness just sort of quietly echoing all around you and then you know we turned on our lanterns back on and there's just like these endless sheets there's like these lakes of ice and and anyway it was just phenomenally cool and i thought i need to write a story about this um and you know and of course there has to be some sort of you know something scary um and at the same time the cassini probe um was you know gearing up and has now it's been a couple of years now since it went through the the, uh, the jupiter system one of the fascinating things about the jupiter system is the sixth moon which is europa which is roughly the same size of our moon uh, but it's essentially a rocky terrestrial planet except that it's encased in ice we still don't know a whole lot about it we certainly don't know what's what's underneath that ice they believe that the ice is anywhere from 10 to 20 kilometers thick in places and that underneath that there's a there's an ocean that surrounds the terrestrial core of this moon um and it's freshwater it's freshwater ice so for my story i envision that's about 80 years in the future we're just beginning to colonize the solar system you know you got the esa the brazilians the chinese uh you know nasa we're all out there in a bit of a competition for resources and claiming places and europa would make an excellent fuel depot if you had fusion ships you can process freshwater ice for the deuterium i think it's less than like a tenth of a percent of freshwater ice is uh, deuterium, but you can use that to make a deuterium deuterium fusion reactor, which you could use to then power your spaceship. So this is getting to be in some pretty crazy sci-fi stuff. And what you do, because Jupiter is seething with radiation, you wouldn't just you know cruise in there and hang out. You'd have to be shielded with electromagnetic shields on your spaceships, and and so they're landing automated robots there on Europa to mine the ice and process the deuterium and then shoot it up into orbit where it's collected by a, a, an automated tanker. And anyway, one of the, in my story, one of the automated mecha, because they're, they're doing samples. I mean, it's basically a featureless ball of ice, except that in places there are planes where the ice is smooth. There's places where it's rippled. There are places, you know, where it's chunks um, because there are tides. There are these slow, powerful, you know, cataclysmic tides through the ice. And I imagine that, you know, in places the um, there were fins of rock that were reaching up through the ice. And so the ice was grinding on the rock and there would be huge fields of, you know, gravel and dust. And, and this would get it. This would get in the way of the machines that were that were melting and processing the deuterium out of the water ice. So they were sampling and looking for areas. They're looking for planes that were calm and peaceful and more efficiently processed. So anyway, one of these samplers guys is pulling up, you know, samples from three kilometers deep to see how clean the ice is in this area, and he pulls up bugs. Little tiny dead frozen bugs, but not, not, even, not any bigger than your, your fingernail on your pinky. But it's life. They're life forms. They're like, oh, my God. And so, you know, all the alarms go off on Earth, and everyone's like, oh, my God, there's, there's something down there in the ice. And they send uh, an international team of explorers of just three people, um, uh, a Chinese, a European, and an American. And, you know, of course, it takes them several months to get there. And you have the dynamics of being in this tight little space together. And anyway, they get there. And in the meantime, the Mecca have been doing more scouting before the science team gets there. Uh, and what happens, of course, is that the science team gets into um, an artificially formed tunnel. There's, there, aren't just cata- there aren't just catacombs and fractures and other open spaces in the ice and in the rock far down below. There are also some tunnels that have been made. And, you know, I don't want to give too much of the story away. It's one of my favorite stories that I've ever written. It's just a really cool idea. It's this crazy environment. And 
But, you know, what they find, of course, is these freaky, blind amphibians, kind of like giant starfish that because they're blind, there's no light. They've never they've never they've never imagined light. Right. Because they're down underneath the ice. They've never imagined the universe beyond the ice. And so when these when these people come down from above, they think that it's just another life form from another isolated ecology within the frozen sky, within the frozen sky of the ice that surrounds Europa. And of course, the freaky blind amphibians start ripping people's faces off and there's landslides and cave-ins and they have these cool weapons. They're in, um, you know, mechanized power armored suits, kind of like in the forever war and old man's war and starship troopers, you know, that kind of, that kind of suit. Uh, so anyway, all just kind of, just kind of cool, scary stuff happens. But I'm a normal person. I just got this idea while I was uh, walking around in ice region veldt with my lovely wife. Uh, on the same idea, on the same idea, uh, that's how I came up with my novel Plague Year, which was out last summer um, and is now I'm now an international sensation. I love saying that. Uh, the book is sold in Germany, Spain. Uh, there are other deals that are coming together because of this book. I've sold short stories in uh, the Czech Republic, Israel, and Turkey. Uh, and I'm hoping that those short stories will, you know, garner more interest in my work. I'll get to be published in more cool foreign languages that I have no idea what it says. Plague year, same kind of idea. It was, it was, uh, an environmental thing. I'm a lifelong skier and backpacker. Um, you know, kind of while I'm on the subject, a friend and I, two friends and I, one of whom is a professional cinematographer released an unbelievable book trailer for the plague year series. Uh, it's called Four Minutes Above 10,000 Feet. It's available on my website. It's available on YouTube. If you just type in Jeff Carlson or Plague War, uh, I'll pop up right there. It's just a four-minute short film. It's full of action and scary stuff. Plague Year was the same kind of thing. It originated from an, an idea of about a different environment and like looking at things in a different way. I love my freaky blind amphibian starfish down there in the ice, and they've been there for thousands of years, and they've developed empires that have risen and fallen, and they've never had any concept of the outside world. You know, to them, you know, the world ends at the top of the frozen sky. Uh, plague year was kind of looking at things a different way. I'm a lifelong skier and backpacker and, you know, never wanted to have to go back to work. We'd be out there having a great time with my brother, our buddies. We'd be skiing all weekend. Oh man, it's Sunday night. We got to drive home. I started to think, you know, what, what if we couldn't go home again? And then I started to think, what if nobody could ever go home again? Um, and, of course, things. I, I live in uh, Northern California near Lake Tahoe, and as a little boy, we used to drive through Donner Pass all the time. And as a little, you know, as a little eight-year-old boy, I was darkly fascinated by the Donner Party and why they were driven to these extremes. It was just kind of part of our, you know, cultural heritage in the area. And uh, my mother, bless her heart, would say things like, "Well, Jeff, if you know our, uh, if our, well, Jeffrey, if our car went into a, an embankment in the snow and we were stuck here, and the only way to survive." you know, was to take that horrible step of cannibalism. I would want you guys to eat me to stay alive. Uh, what a horrible thing to say to an impressionable eight-year-old child. Now, as a father myself, now I totally get it. I, I would, I, you know, I would lay myself down in front of the oncoming bus if that would save my own sons. I get it. I totally get which, where she was coming from. Um, but those ideas were kind of tick, tick, ticking around in my brain. Uh, and then as a skier and a backpacker, not wanting to go back home, I started to look around and think, you know, what if we couldn't go home? Originally in this novel, which has now become a trilogy, uh, the, the problem was a virus. But I couldn't make a virus obey a barrier. The virus kept coming up, you know, all the way over the mountain and killing everybody. And if everybody's dead, you really don't have a story. 
Um, I'm very into science. I read a lot of publications. I go to science fiction conventions. I love to go to those science panels and hear, you know, these astrophysicists and molecular biologists and all these guys just talk about their stuff. It's just fascinating. It's just amazing stuff. Um, and I, you know, kind of stumbled into nanotech because you could, you could build this stuff. And of course, now that the book is out, it's awesome. CNN did like this big, you know, expose on the nanotech industry. And I mean, they really are doing this stuff now, not quite at the level of the nanobots in my books, but there are people in private labs, some military, some civilian that aren't publishing their work. We don't know how far along they are. If you posit a couple advances, the nanobots in my book are not far-fetched at all. And in my book, they're designed to target malignant tissues and cancer, but they're still a prototype. And of course, you know, there's an active industrial espionage and the, the nanotech breaks loose of the lab before it's ready. And, and well, it, it devours all warm-blooded life across the planet below 10,000 feet, where it self-destructs at low air densities due to a hyperbaric fuse, which is what they were using as one of their controls in the lab before it was pirated out through the airlock and, you know, chaos ensues. Uh, this was an absolutely fantastic book to write a fantastic fun just full of you know chaos and excellent dynamics with the characters the people who are who survived are full of you know guilt and trauma and some of them are halfway insane themselves and they're all struggling their best to deal with it it's kind of a dark concept you know you know every everybody dies uh but the people who are left the book is really about human ingenuity and strength and the best of what's in people, our cleverness, our intelligence, our, our ability to overcome pain and hurt and alienation and suffering and all this stuff, because I think people are really, really cool. And I'm happy to be a person. Uh, but you can't just have like the Mary Poppin version of Plague Year. It just doesn't work. It's, it's a dark idea. You have to kind of follow it through. And you know, so here I am now. My my second novel has just come out, and that's Plague War, which is a sequel. My editors and publishers were like, "Wow, this book is awesome. We think it will do well. What a great concept!" They said, "Can you give us more?" I had originally intended to do it as a standalone, and I said to them, "I said, well, you know, there are still a few people alive at the end of the first book, um, and as long as you have three people, you have a story. I mean, there's much more than that left alive." Uh, and the cool part for me, most of the book takes place in California and Colorado. These are places that I know. I ski there. I hike there. I know people there. Um, and I could bring that realism of the biosphere and the ecology. And there's all kinds of cool things that happen. If you know, if you remove all the mammals and birds below 10,000 feet across the planet, there will be catastrophic environmental consequences. Uh, you get to get into cool stuff like accelerated niche species evolution with the insects. I got to speak with evolutionary biologists at Rutgers and Cornell. I have a stepbrother who's a special forces major. I uh, made some good contacts in the in the United States Air Force. You know, spoke with them. Got all the technical stuff. You know, right? Because that that's important. I mean, this book could it could actually happen. This could happen tomorrow. Um, and then Plague War, I tried to expand the scope a little more. That's all in the background of the first book. You know, what's happening in the Afghanistan mountains, in the Himalayas, you know, the Alps, um, you know, our, our allies who are trying to develop their own nanotech to save us all, like in India and in the Indian Himalayas. Uh, in Plague War, I expanded the scope a little bit more, brought in a few more point of view characters and started talking about, you know, what would happen next. I, without giving too much away, clearly there is a uh, a war in the book, and, and there's still a plague. It's called Plague War, and the first book is Plague Year, and I'm currently about halfway through the third book uh, to complete the trilogy, which uh, has the working title of Mind Plague, and it has a whole new cool bad guy, and you know things go crazy again, and it's fun to just kind of keep 
you know, ratcheting that up and backing the bad guys into a corner and see how they can possibly overcome these horrible odds. Uh, I think I'm beginning to run a little bit long on the time that uh, the guys over at Starship Sofa asked me to do. I'm going to try and wrap up here with some bright ideas. I do encourage everyone to come by my website, which is jverse.com. J as in Jeff, verse as in universe. Jverse.com. I have, uh, there's free excerpts of both books there. There's a couple free short stories, my blog, uh, fun photos. There's a fun contest there. If you can answer some really obscure, tough, mind croggling science fiction trivia ideas, I will name a character after. I will name a character after you or a friend in one of my upcoming novels. And of course, they'll die horribly. They'll have their, you know, face ripped off by some kind of freaky alien life form or, or they'll be, you know, slowly disintegrated alive by the nanotech, but it's still fun. Um, you know, I got a blog there and again, the book trailer, I, I heartily encourage everyone to go check out the book trailer. We're very, very excited about it. Uh, it has amazingly high production values for something that really just cost me a handful of sandwiches. And we had to license some songs for the soundtrack. Um, you know, my, my buddy, Adad Warda, total mastermind, put a bunch of days into it, brought in some CGI. Um, and it was, it was filmed, you know, up there in the Sierras, in the snow, not quite really at 10,000 feet, but really close. It looks like we're at 10,000 feet and we're running around in the snow. And again, we're billing it as the Blair Witch Project meets Alive, which of course is the story of the uh, the Brazilian soccer team that was lost in the Andes and horrible things happened to them. We're billing it as the Blair Witch Project meets Alive meets the new Andromeda strain. Just kind of a lot of cool ideas. Uh, I got a million more things to talk about, but don't want to go too long here. Uh, again, come by my website. I'm totally welcome correspondents. I'd love to hear from people. They always have some neat ideas. I got some, uh, I got a pack of people now that are forwarding me more stuff about nanotech. Uh, they're, you know, real life researchers themselves, or they're just into it. They forward me a bunch of cool stuff. I get to incorporate that into my work. Always looking for more cool ideas. Um, thank you for your time. I hope you had fun because I did too. It was cool. Thank you very much. There you go. I hope you enjoyed that, Jeff. Thank you so much for that. Fascinating and interesting. Anybody out there who can think of another author that might have a new book coming out, drop me a line and I will try and get in touch with them. I'll try and plague them. We'll have some nice authors lined up to do that, but most authors, most writers aren't really into sound, so it's dragging teeth out of dead horses, but I will try my best. So hopefully you've enjoyed the show tonight. You know, I've, uh, it's been rather enjoyable. This show goes out on the 6th, I think it is the 6th of August, in a few days' time. I will be on my holidays in fantastic country of Italy, in the magnificent city of Florence, actually about five miles outside. So, And my little timer is working now, so hopefully you'll still get some shows, and there'll be some of the sanatorium shows sprinkled throughout as well. I've seen a copy, please pop over, because at this moment I'm not too sure... But I've seen the, a copy of the picture that's going to be part of the sanatorium done by Skeet. And it looks fantastic. So keep popping over to the Starship Sofa main site. And once you see that kind of picture there, you know, in the new show open, please go over there and, you know, do your best, do your duty and sign up to the new Starship Sanatorium feed. So I would love to hear where you're listening to the show. I would love to have some emails from you. I know I won't be able to answer any for the next two weeks, but please, I will get round to answering all the emails. I'd love to know where you live, where you work, where you listen to the show. So, starshipsofa at gmail.com. Comments, please. Pop over the forums. Say hello to everyone there. I think that's it. 
please don't forget if you like what I'm doing and you like the show and you want to kind of contribute in another way do drop a donation again £2.50 a month signs you up and you get the private feed but if you want to just leave a donation that would be fine as well pop over to the main site I really do appreciate it so I would just like to say I'm on my holidays and I will catch you when I catch you good night from me survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1... deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.